Quite surprisingly to me even, there are people within the scientific world who are interested in hearing what I have to say. And I've been invited to present my ideas at some of the leading scientific institutions in the world, such as the Royal Institution in London, the Russian Academy of Science in Moscow, Department of Anthropology, uh, the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore and many others around the world. Why would thousands of artifacts be ignored by mainstream archaeology? They show the unthinkable. Images of man battling with dinosaurs. Reptilian creatures interacting with men and women. Ancient inscriptions on stones depicting complex surgical procedures and carved metallic spheres found in rock strata 2.8 billion years old. This evidence points to one conclusion, that the history of life on this planet may be radically different than what is accepted today. Everybody, welcome back to the Mars Chronicles. Uh, very happy to be here, and we are with a living legend, the one and only Mr. Michael Cremo. He is a dear treasure. He has done incredible work for many decades, rebutting the mainstream science with some real science and taking people back to ancient history in a way that they've never heard before. He's one of a kind, and he's here with us now. Michael Cremo, thank you so much, sir. Great to see you, and welcome to Mars Chronicles. Good to be with you and all the Mars Chronicles people. Awesome. Good to see you again, Michael. Glad you're here. Appreciate you making time in your busy schedule to, to come out with us and, and talk to us about your work um, and some incredible work that you've done over the years. I mean, in the 1990s, you had a special on the mainstream talking about your book, Forbidden Archaeology. And, and you really threw a, a, for, a wrench or a fork in the spokes of the mainstream archaeological community with your work. And uh, I wouldn't say that it was gladly accepted by them, um, but you have definitely had a following over the years of people who've helped investigate, people who've uh, supported your work and, and really dug a lot into these rabbit holes and these mysteries of ancient origins of humanity in antiquity. Um, can you tell us a little bit about kind of how this all got started for you? Well, that's, that's a, a long story, probably too long for this yeah. show, but uh, basically, it, it started when I encountered the ancient wisdom tradition of India, which has uh, uh, 
some writings called the Puranas or the histories, and they told of a very ancient human presence on this planet going back millions and millions of years. And you find similar things in many of the wisdom traditions around the world. So I thought, well, is that just some mythology that these ancient people thought up, or is there perhaps some factual basis for it? So that's what got me looking into archaeology. And if you look in the current textbooks of archaeology, you don't find any evidence that humans were existing any more than a couple of hundred thousand years ago. But if uh, you, you go beyond the textbooks and start looking into the original scientific reports by archaeologists, geologists, and others, you find many reports of scientists finding human bones, human artifacts, human footprints going back far longer than a couple of thousand, hundred thousand years. So I collected those in the book, Forbidden Archaeology, and it kind of became a whole career. Well, what a career it's been. And you've spoken at some incredibly prestigious conferences. You've spoken at Google even. You've spoken uh, all over. I, I got the honor of featuring you in a few stops for the Modern Knowledge Tour, if you remember back in 2014, 2015. Right. I got to meet you in person. And uh, I can tell everybody you're just a great guy and a wealth of knowledge. And um, when it comes to this, we should maybe start with the problems in science in general. We're learning a lot about that when it comes to different fields of science, where there seems to be tunnel vision and, and the real science of being objective and looking at different pieces of evidence and trying to pool it all together to find the truth is really, it's out the window uh, these days. And it's no different in the field of archaeology and getting into human origins. What do you think happened to science? Why do they not want the world to know, which in my opinion would be one of the most incredible discoveries ever You'd think every journalist would want to uh, go after the Pulitzer with this. They'd, you know, mm -hmm. why do they shun this thesis and why do they despise it so much? Well, yeah, I, I think it has to do with majority and minority views in the world of science. Um, you know, there's always going to be some majority consensus opinion, but then there are outliers. There are uh, scientists who see something that the other ones don't. And it depends upon how the majority is going to react to that minority opinion. And, you know, like when Darwin started out, for example, with his theory of evolution, he was in a minority. Uh, this often happens in, in the world of, of, of science. But what's ha happened today is something even a bit more extreme. What happens is that the majority group of scientists in any particular area of research has been able to convince government to support them and exclude other ideas, especially from the education system. So this creates kind of a, an unfair advantage for those in the majority that only their views get 
presented and everything else is considered just uh, beyond beyond the pale, you know, forbidden. That's why I called the book Forbidden Archaeology. You know, you can't touch it. You can't look at it. So uh, I, I think uh, it's better to appreciate the full full diversity of opinion that's out there and present it to people and then let them make up their own minds about it rather than trying to force everybody to accept whatever happens to be the majority view at any particular time. I 100% agree. And, and, you know, that's one of the biggest problems with today's society, um, including academia, the scientific world, is that the, the ideas flow where the money goes. And that when that money flows into those ideas, they become the dominant figure and everything else gets suppressed. And we start seeing this, this decline of these alternative ideas, these alternative theories. Um, and then they have to lurk there on the fringe. And, you know, it's, it's shameful that that happens, but that's the institutions that have arose within this world that are funded by taxpayer dollars. Yeah, I, I think that's the unfortunate truth today. Um, in one sense, you can say I'm, I'm a bit of an intellectual anarchist, not a, a social anarchist or a political anarchist, but um, in, the, in the sense that I don't believe that the majority group of scientists should use government to compel everyone to go along with their ideas to the exclusion of, of all others. I, I think if somebody, by exercising their intelligence and considering all the different points of view, decides that the mainstream view is what makes most sense to them, then fine, just as long as they don't try to impose it on somebody who has concluded something else may be the, uh, the, the correct view. And then let, let things just develop mm -hmm. and see you know, if there's fair competition amongst the holders of the different competing views and one wins more support than the other, fine. But if one is just imposing their own view on others, compelling them to accept it, that's not good. Oh, I, Michael, I wish you were more involved in setting policy in a lot of these education systems and, and, and scientific establishments. Well, let's start with the story then. This is such a big story. And folks, you have to check out the books, The Hidden History of the Human Race, Forbidden Archaeology, uh, Human Devolution. There's so many great works that Michael's produced. The presentations are endless. But just a sketch. I mean, we called this show Mars Chronicles because Josh and I had uh, some curiosity about not just the ancient history of this planet, but also the implications of our solar system and our universe and, and where we find ourselves. You know, what is really going on in, in our world and how did we come to be who we are why do humans stick out like a sore thumb and uh you know there's so many mysteries we've got mysterious monuments all over the world 
these massive monuments and ruins and structures. And it seems like there's evidence of lost civilizations right in front of our faces that would actually bear out a lot of what you're saying and what these ancient texts were telling us. Um, but how would you start this off, especially for people that are not familiar with this idea? Um, with this idea of extreme human antiquity? Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, today the mainstream idea is that humans like us first came into existence about 200 or 300,000 years ago. And before that, they would say there were no human beings like us. And they say all of the evidence supports that, that idea, no other. But if you actually look at all of the evidence and not just what's in today's textbooks, you'll find that there's a lot of evidence that humans like us existed millions of years ago. And it's there in the original scientific reports. So then it becomes like a question, well, why isn't this evidence, if it's there in the original scientific reports, why isn't it in today's textbooks? And I believe that's because of a process of knowledge filtration that operates in the scientific world. And I'll give a, a couple of examples to give any listeners uh, an idea about what this evidence is like. You know, for example, in the 19th century, gold was discovered in California and miners went there and they dug tunnels into the sides of mountains like Table Mountain in the Sierra Nevada mountains and central California. And deep inside these tunnels, the miners were finding human bones, human artifacts, and layers of rock that modern geologists tell us are about 50 million years old. These discoveries came to the attention of the chief government geologist of California, uh, Dr. J.D. Whitney, who was a Harvard-educated geologist. And he published a report about these discoveries but uh, there was opposition from other scientists. You know, they, you know, for example, there was uh, William Holmes, who was an anthropologist working at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C., and he said, oh, if Dr. Whitney understood the theory of human evolution, he wouldn't have published those discoveries. In other words, he should have known that humans could not have existed at that time. And the, the evidence was cast into oblivion. Now, if that happened just one or two times, you could say, okay, there are a few you know, anomalous discoveries, but it, it hasn't happened just one or two times. It's happened hundreds of times. And, you know, that's why, you know, the unabridged version of my book, Forbidden Archaeology, is about 900 pages long. 
you know, there's enough evidence to, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, really. So someone might say, okay, well, what difference does it make if human beings have been around uh, a few hundred thousand years or a few hundred million? The difference that it makes is that we need new theories of human origins. And I think they're going to, these new theories are going to be based on consciousness. And it's going to have an extraterrestrial element to it. So if we get beyond the knowledge filtration that's going on, not just in archaeology, but in many areas of science, we'll see that we get a different picture of who we are and where we came from and where we should be going. Well, to me and Josh, what do you think? I mean, I think that's the biggest question. That's some of the most important questions is because uh, many people I've spoken to over the years have been to these conferences. They've kind of looked at it as, well, humanity is suffering from amnesia and we're fighting over still to this day in 2022, we're fighting over our origins for the longest time. It was the traditional creationism versus Darwinism. Those two main contenders have been battling it out for as long as you can remember. But then anything that's either a combination of the two or different entirely is completely thrown out. And that's just interesting. It's almost like humanity doesn't want to know their origins, right. except for people listening to this show, of course. Well, you know, I, I find that I, I think pre like 1850, 1800, I think that it was very well known that human origins probably dated back millions of years. And I think that a lot of ancient cultures knew this and they they orchestrated it within their artwork, within their symbology. Um, but you had the, the neo-socialist revolution that came about in the mid 1850s and uh, Karl Marx himself who came out with the Communist Manifesto, right? Th this is a man who is directly in connection with Marx. Or, sorry, not Marx, but Darwin. Darwin yeah. was uh, funded by the, the uh, Ramschild uh, Roth Rothschild, right? Amschel Rothschild. So when we look at this, is if, if the information that Michael is talking about is accurate, which I 100% believe it is, and he said it's the tip of the iceberg, and he's absolutely right, is that it, it goes against this neo-communist revolution that's happening right now, uh, this whole plan, this whole orchestration of everything that's coming about in modern day. And see, what it does is it disregards evolution, the theory of evolution, Darwin's theory of evolution. It completely rewrites the history books pertaining to that one significant part of the scientific community of which they boated up for a hundred and something plus years as the, the crux of their... Uh, their theoretical models. And so if we come out and say that humanity is millions of years old, evolution just gets thrown right out. It, it, it's gone now. It, it no longer suffices because now we weren't 200,000 years ago. We develop our neocortex and we become these smart, intelligent beings. And then we start to dominate as the apex predator. Now this means that 2 million years ago, we existed as these intelligent beings on this planet. And we had many cultures and civilizations and something destroyed them over and over in a cyclic fashion and this brings about even more questions now that pertains to the et origins it talks about you know mars all these other things yeah michael what do you think about that what do you think about the idea of ancient 
catastrophes or the idea of these like big yuga cycles where humanity rises up into civilization. This is where we see some of this remnants of stories of Atlantis and places like that. And then something happens and it's all just shattered and forgotten. And then we're kind of going through this. How do you see that? Uh, that's a very important question. And I do see cyclical time. I want to respond to something that, you know, a point that Josh was making, sure. namely about, you know, Marxism and Darwinism. The key thing that connects them both is materialism. The idea that everything is produced by combinations of material elements, even consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, that is the, the, the main idea, you know, that everything is just, uh, you know, we're just machines made of molecules. That's what we are. And as far as consciousness is concerned, it's just a byproduct of bioelectrical activity in the brain. That's right. all that whether we're talking about Marxism or Darwinism, it's kind of all based on yep. that, that concept. However, I, I was just a couple of weeks ago at a, a conference called the science of consciousness, which is held every couple of years. It brings together many of the, scientists involved in neuroscience and consciousness studies and a very prominent researcher in that area a man named christoph Koch, was there he's one of the main supporters of this idea that consciousness is produced by brain activity of neurons he said uh, 20 years ago, I was saying we'd have completely solved that problem and shown how consciousness can arise from matter. Since 20 years later, I have to say we're no closer to any solution to that problem than, than we were at that time. So it's uh, kind of interesting. They, they're, they're, they, they're committed to this idea. They think it had that's the way it happened it had to happen that way but we haven't figured it out yet uh i, I right. think that so, opens up other possibilities mm -hmm. but to get to your point sure. david uh yeah i think human civilizations have come and gone on this planet over vast periods of time you mentioned the yuga cycles which are mentioned in the Vedic cosmology of ancient India. Well, the Greeks and the Romans, they also had this idea of cycles of ages. And they also had the idea of uh, civilizations coming and going many, many times. The ancient Egyptians also had that uh, concept. So, uh, I, I think that is a fact that there are vast cycles of time where civilizations have risen and fallen many times. And I think you're also right that there's an extraterrestrial element to, to this as, as well. The Earth is not the only place where there's intelligent life in, 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 the, in the universe. So 
at this conference I was at at Tucson, one of the speakers was Avi Loeb, who was head of the uh, astronomy department at Harvard University. And he became a little bit notorious in recent years, you know, because he, he I, has identified or suggested that uh, uh, an asteroid or comet that came from some other solar system, not from ours, but from some other part of the galaxy and entered our solar system, might be a probe from an intelligent civilization elsewhere in the galaxy. And he's convinced such civilizations exist and that they're likely to be more advanced than we are. So that's a... Uh, well, that's uh, incredible because we're still sitting on this planet where the va a lot of people still to this day, when you start talking about this subject, they're just like, oh, here we go with aliens. And it's like, well, no, we have to think about this. I mean, the I said this in one of the earlier episodes of this series. Phenomenologically, the fact that we exist, actually it was Mark, Mike Barra that brought this up. Yes. The fact that you exist, the fact that I exist is all the evidence you need to be in a perfectly logical place to speculate on the fact that this universe is full of life. It's not just one little desolated accident, the way science tells us. Um, and so this opens up the possibilities of looking at some of these ancient texts in a much different way when they're talking about beings coming from the heavens or uh, the worship and obsession with these gods and these deities and these royal families and whatnot. And it just, it makes you think about, well, where do we humans fit into all of this? Because one thing that really stands out to me is just how different we are from every other living organism on the planet. And one of the things that Josh brought up to even kick off this series was actually, Josh, why don't you tell Michael what you, you brought up and maybe we'll get his opinion on that. That was interesting. Well, there's when I was getting out of the military, I was walking into the sun and I was squinting really bad. And, and the thoughts started coming to my mind is. I see a bird fly by. I see a dog walking down the street and none of the dogs or the birds or any of the animals for that instance are squinting to the rays of the sun. And I started looking into it and you come to find out that evolution or adaptation, which I like to call it, of on this planet, that all these animals have adapted to the environment on this planet, except for humans, that we seemingly de-evolved from the state of where we were adapted to the solar conditions on this planet to where we squint when we see the sun. Our skin burns when we're in the sun for prolonged times. Um, and I asked a, a few doctors about this, and they said it was because the Sasonian man lived deep in the woods, and and they they were covered from the sun, and then we invented hats. And I said yes, but if you even go deep into the woods, the animals there are adapted to the solar conditions on this planet and don't have those same effects. And so it appears as if mankind is out of touch on this planet with all the rest of the organisms on this planet. And then to give note to that is when astronauts go into space and they start getting away from the earth is that their circadian rhythms don't set to the, uh, the, the 24 hours, but it sets to a little bit longer of a period, which would be the rotation actually really set to the rotation of Mars. So the circadian rhythms really set to the 29 hour day on Mars, which I found interesting as well. And it would make sense that we came from some place that had less of a solar influence, solar radiation bombardment, because our eyes just cannot take the strain. Our brows are definitely not developed towards it. Our skin 
obviously is highly reactive to it. What are your thoughts, uh, Michael, on that? Um, I definitely think there's a, an extraterrestrial aspect to our 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 origins, and you know this is reflected in a lot of the ancient wisdom traditions, which uh, sort of suggests that we're at least some of the human populations are hybrid. Uh, you know, they they talk of uh, celestial fathers or mothers, you know, mating with uh, terrestrial males or females to produce offspring. That's very common. Uh, in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, there are you know, descriptions of uh, the the five Pandava brothers. They were all born by uh, a, a terrestrial female, you know, their mother uh, having uh, intercourse with extraterrestrial beings from some higher dimension of reality. Many of the world's royal families uh, consider themselves to be the result of celestial ancestors. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's a, a common aspect. And yeah, I was really surprised when I first published my book of Forbidden Archaeology and I started going out speaking about it. I was really surprised. I started getting invitations to speak at UFO conferences and alien and extraterrestrial conferences. And I was thinking, why, why is that? What, what is the connection? You know, I'm talking about extreme human antiquity on this planet. And the connection is the knowledge filtration aspect of it, because uh, in, in both fields, you know, they could, you know, I mean, they see, okay, we've got all kinds of observations by qualified military pilots. We've got evidence that is, is just really great. We've got confirmation of visual observations by radar and other technical means. Of course, there, it seems like they're trying to deal with this. There was that congressional hearing on uh, UAPs, I guess mm -hmm. they call them now, un unidentified aerial phenomena where they're starting to tiptoe their way into this aspect of things. But uh, uh, that's something you know, we also have to consider. Uh, another aspect has to do with consciousness because ultimately I see the human body as a vehicle for a conscious self, which has an origin beyond the world of, of matter. Uh, so in that sense, we're all extraterrestrials. Mm -hmm. and, good point. and as conscious selves, we're adapted to another another reality where there's not the kind of 
disturbances that we see on this level of reality. So that's that's such a thoughts. great way to put it, Michael, that, you know, just thinking on what human, what we've all called the soul or the conscious self or the consciousness, that this is something that is foreign to what we call matter and what we look at in terms of our traditional histories, as we've been told, there's something way bigger going on. Uh, what do you think about, I'm sure you've run into Richard Hoagland's work and, and people like that, where he's talking about the evidence of a lot of these ancient structures on bodies in our solar system. Um, do you think that this ancient antiquity of planet Earth and these ancient lost civilizations are only uh, something that was a product of this Earth? Or do you think this was also something that, as you're saying, would have been uh, across our solar system and, and even our galaxy? Uh, I believe that every part of our universe or what to, what to speak of our galaxy is inhabited it's uh if we think of things in terms of consciousness rather than matter if we think in terms of matter coming from consciousness rather than consciousness coming from matter then we get uh, an entirely different picture of reality you know, our universe we would see well what is the purpose why is there a, a universe at all i would say it's here to give conscious selves the opportunity to develop an understanding of where they really belong not in this world where they occupy bodies or vehicles made of matter kind of like a, a virtual reality system where you have an avatar or something that you identify with in the virtual reality uh, that you have you actually have an identity apart from uh, your virtual reality avatar and i think the whole system has been set up to allow us to realize that and the importance of the human vehicle is this is the vehicle where you can actually do something about it you can free your consciousness from its identification with uh, this uh, these temporary vehicles that we occupy for a few years and then they fall apart and disintegrate you know it's not a, a really good position to be in so i think that leads to the idea yes this universe has a purpose and th there's life everywhere and it's on uh, a path of you could say the evolution of consciousness that's Love incredible it. that like that to me resonates so deeply um, and even understanding some of the idea from, you know, that consciousness and matter are separate in one sense, but they're, I like that you said it's an extension and that these bodies that we have are just temporary vehicles for us to express this unique signal of that whole consciousness that we all have and we're all partaking in. And then yeah, that's a limited time. And then it, you know, it's like that cup of water, you, 
dip it into the ocean, you fill up the cup and then the cup breaks and the water goes back into the ocean and then it comes back. I mean, that, uh, and this is also played out very much in many of these ancient wisdom traditions, right? Yeah. And I, I was looking at some of the comments on, on the chat and, uh, you know, I see someone has uh, talked about an extended conception of extraterrestrials to include angels and things like that. And I really agree with that whole point of view. I, I kind of share that uh, expanded definition of what extraterrestrials and aliens are. As I said, I, I would think we're all extraterrestrials as beings of pure consciousness. None of us are from this terrestrial world of matter. And I think there are different categories of, of beings. Yes, I think there are flesh and blood extraterrestrials, but I think there are also different dimensions of even material reality where you have more subtle, you know, intermediate beings, you could say, of, of the nature of angels, jinn, different cultures. They have different names, gods, demigods, uh, different names for them. So I, I just want to respond to that yeah, one no, interesting awesome. point that was raised in the chat there. That's wonderful. And actually, as you say that, where do you factor in the the question of evil into this just as my own curiosity if you see because people will bring up angels they're also going to bring up demons and they're going to bring up the the fact that we see both good and evil on the planet we see both potentials being expressed if that's expressed on this level on our planet would it also not extend out to life as maybe a, a mechanism built into the universe that's maybe dualistic right absolutely um I believe every conscious being has free will. And in the world of matter, basically, you there have always been, for hundreds of millions, trillions of years, however long this material world has been here, there have always been two types of conscious beings in it. One type is trying to dominate, control, and exploit the resources of matter and the other conscious beings who are in this world. And, and you could say that is one tendency. You could call it the demoniac tendency or whatever. And then another, the other type of conscious being in this world is the one who's trying to understand, you know, I'm not just a machine made of molecules in competition with other such machines made of molecules for survival, and I'm willing to do anything I, I need to do in order to succeed at that individually and collectively it's that's one type of person the other type of conscious self is thinking 
okay, I'm, I'm not that machine made of matter. I'm a being of pure consciousness. You're a being of pure consciousness. We're all beings of pure consciousness. And uh, we're, we're not here to try to dominate and control and exploit material nature. We're here to satisfy our material needs in the most simple, natural, efficient, fair way possible while putting most of our human energy into raising or developing that consciousness to its natural goal. So, uh, yeah, I agree with you. And this has played out throughout the entire history of the universe, not just on this planet, but on other planets. Like the ancient Sanskrit writings of India say that uh, there were, you know, there are uh, these two types, not just on this planet, but on other planets elsewhere and at different levels of reality. But the earth is kind of a battleground for them. And the higher demoniac forces, sometimes they take birth in different families on the earth. And then the others, you know, who are more on the, the side of light rather than darkness, they also take uh, birth or appear on this level of reality. So there are, I mean, this is where Star Wars comes from, ultimately. Uh, I, I, I think uh, the original filmmaker, uh, he he was really knowledgeable about a lot of these ancient wisdom traditions and he kind of pulled the essence out of it and made it into a, a modern cosmological myth, you could say. Well, but, Joseph Campbell was actually a consultant to George Lucas on the development of Star Wars. Yeah. So basically they're taking uh, truths from... Mm -hmm the ancient wisdom systems like uh, and literatures like the Mahabharata from ancient India, where you've got these battles taking place between the forces of good and evil or darkness on a celestial level and also a terrestrial level. So that, that element is, is, is there uh, we we do find that sort of thing going on and everyone has their free will to decide which path they're going to to follow and based on the decisions that people make we get a certain type of world yeah. And you're, you're so fun. You brought up free will a number of times. So I, I just, I love this subject really quickly. I mean, doesn't this correspond or the issue with free will today, which has come back in vogue, by the way, of the idea that humans don't have free will. Um, that's come from this materialist idea, this materialist viewpoint of, of what humans are, that we're just machines made of matter, as you said. And so therefore 
we don't have free will. We are deterministic beings, meaning it's all programmed in. There's nothing you can do about it. You're going to do what you're going to do, no matter how much you meditate or pray or try to be a better person. You are determined by your genes and that's the end of it. That's, that's, a, that's one very devastating byproduct of materialism is that it's canceling out free will. And if you listen right now to what they're talking about at places like the World Economic Forum with Yuval Harari or whatever his name is as their guru, and this comes from these materialists, they are at the point where they see it so materialistically that they want to start merging man with machine and building this AI technological future. And although there is a place for technology, if the underpinning philosophy is materialism and determinism, then if they're canceling out free will, you can then see their worldview as to why they see, well, we need to then take the elites of the world and own all the resources because we can't trust these, these other creatures, uh, other humans out there because they're already determined to be failures or whatever. So we need us to run everything and freedom is just an illusion. So let's just get rid of freedom and have totalitarianism. And of course, throughout history, where have we seen that before? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it is a, a feature of modern life. And in my book, Forbidden Archaeology, I, you know, I had done some research into the influence of foundations on, on this particular issue. And yeah, I looked at the history of the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation and some others. Uh, and it turns out in the 1930s and 40s, they were starting to fund research into genetics. They were funding research into evolution, particularly humans evolving from apes. They were funding research into uh, cosmology. They were funding all kinds of research. And it seems like it was very scattered, but uh, the one of the heads of uh, the Rockefeller Foundation said it's all connected because what we're trying to do by studying everything from genetics up to cosmology is ultimately understand the human organism, how it, how it operates according to the laws of physics and the universe, how it's generated from uh, chemicals in the oceans of the early earth. And, and they said it's all with the intention of understanding the human organism and its mind with the goal of establishing beneficial social control. Hmm. And they kind of laid it out you know, just very explicitly what they were trying to do. And I think it goes along with what you were just saying, uh, Dave, which is what's going on at the, what, what did you say, the World Economic Forum? Right, yeah. Yeah, they're calling it the Great Reset. And the official advertising campaign was, hey, guys, guess what? You're going to own nothing and be so happy about it 
meaning of course they're going to own everything and just i guess rent it out to us it kind of like in the middle ages under feudalism where the lords mm -hmm. and the kings would own everything and then just have a bunch of slave classes below them um it's been a dream of these elites for a long time to return to a system like that except now they've got nanotechnology cybernetics ai and uh a boatload of, of wealth um and so this to me seems like a physical manifestation of some of those dark forces that you were talking about earlier because it's very anti-human i mean these people also believe there are too many humans which is another byproduct of that worldview of materialism that we don't have enough we're running out it's scarcity we we couldn't have any kind of energy system uh that would allow for a bigger population so we're just gonna control the resources and thin out the herd that's a possibility yeah it, it's a scary possibility you know it's um when you look at your work and when you look at kind of the modern day and and we try to grasp our heads especially with what you just said is that there appears to be a progressive conspiracy over millennia to suppress the information pertaining that the foundation of reality is consciousness and not matter but instead to bring about this idea that matter is the basis of all reality and that we don't have a spiritual self and that doesn't exist and that goes along with what david's saying with the world economic forum uh dr noah harari who's come out and said this that human beings are nothing but animals and they're just automatons and they can be controlled and manipulated at the cellular and the genetic level um you know when we look at it in this sense is this has been happening for a very long time on this planet um do you see it more as a aspect of the human condition as in it just manifests naturally because of who we are within our personalities, within our development and our growth? Or do you think that there is someone, something behind this, like these dark forces that are here on Earth right now, perpetuating this agenda and bringing it to this fruition? Kind of like all of the above. You know, it's <laughs> good answer. Yeah. Part of our nature. We all have the choice. Right. You know, whether we're going to try to dominate, control and exploit and or are we going to, you know, try to appreciate ourselves as beings of pure consciousness, others as beings of pure consciousness and organize our society on that basis. I, I think this is the position of science and the whole structure you know it the way that you control someone is you control their sense of identity you don't try to force them to do particular tasks you just control their sense of identity and then they will automatically cooperate with your program Right. So the, the function of science in the modern world is to give us the sense of identity that we are machines made of molecules, basically, and that our purpose is to produce and consume more and more material things in competing groups, whether we call them nations or classes or races or religions or whatever 
you know, you produce and consume more and more material things. And by that process, wealth is generated and the wealth goes into certain pockets. You know, some people, they, you know, there are political, financial, economic, military, and educational, uh, and cultural institutions that are based on keeping that system intact. And I think that's why there's resistance hmm. to any idea that there may be a conscious self that can exist apart from matter. They resist that like anything because I think they realize if you have a different sense of identity, then if you have a, a more consciousness-based sense of who you are, your values and your goals and your ambitions are going to be somewhat different than they are today. And it's not going to be very good for these political, religious, financial, military, cultural institutions that have been built on this matter-based sense of identity. So that's why I think there's so much resistance to this idea because people would be putting less energy into the kinds of things that are giving uh, these different institutions so much power and influence in the world. Oh, that's brilliant. That's 100%. Yeah. Um, well, Michael, we've got about 10 minutes left here. Um, I wonder if you could just maybe go through some of the examples, some of the, the strong examples for you of this evidence of ancient human antiquity, and maybe even some of the, the scientists and archaeologists that have been forgotten in this mix, um, because it seems like there is a chapter, there are scientists throughout all of history that have documented this and have come out, but something has suppressed them. But just to start off with, what are some of the best examples that you can show people or talk about a little bit here that talk about ancient human antiquity? Yeah. Well, one thing to consider is this uh, goes back to the time of Darwin. Darwin published his book, Origin of Species, in 1859. And scientists in Europe and America and other places started thinking, well, human beings must have evolved too. And what did they evolve from? They must have evolved from some primitive ape-like creature that existed millions of years ago. So they began to think we must find some intermediate being between ancient apes and modern humans. In other words, the missing link, uh, some people have called it. So scientists are all over the world began looking for this missing link in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, and they weren't finding it. What they were finding was evidence that humans like us existed long time ago. You know, for example, uh, in Italy at a place called Castanedolo 
an Italian geologist, uh, Giuseppe Ragazzoni, found human skeletons in layers of rock about four million years old. In other parts of Europe, like Portugal, you had Carlos Ribeiro, who was the head government geologist of that country. He found in Portugal human artifacts in layers of rock about 20 million years old, and he displayed them in the Museum of Geology in Lisbon. And you know, after he died, his colleagues kind of put them away because you know, they didn't think humans existed that far in the past. But uh, you had many cases like that throughout the 1860s, 1880s, 1890s. Then at the end of the 1890s, there was the discovery in Java of what they called uh, the uh, Java Man. And it was about a million years old. And they decided, okay, now we've got our missing link. And then they had to decide, well, what are we going to do with all the other evidence that accumulated over the past couple of few decades that showed human beings existed long before that? That's when a lot of this stuff got suppressed, eliminated from the textbooks, you know, and, and, and then after that time, after the beginning of the 20th century, if they, if scientists found anything human that was older than a million years, they either forgot about it, suppressed it, or interpreted it in such a way that it fit the idea that humans like us had to have evolved somewhere after a million years ago. And like I said, now they put it at about 300,000 years. But even today, scientists find these things. Like in 1979, Mary Leakey found footprints at a place called Leitoli in the country of Tanzania in East Africa. And in her original report published in National Geographic magazine, she said these footprints are exactly like modern human footprints. And they were found in layers of rock about 4 million years old. So you could say, all right, well, that's evidence for humans like us existing 4 million years ago. But she didn't see it that way. She said, well, humans like us couldn't have existed at that time. So there must have been some kind of ape man, some kind of hominid is the technical term for it, that existed at that time, had and had feet exactly like modern human feet, although the rest of the body was very ape-like. Nobody's ever found any skeleton of any such creature. Uh, the only, only creature known to science today that has feet exactly like 
a modern human being is a modern human being. <laughs> so those are a few examples, but there are hundreds of them. So, Michael, I got a question for you. Um, if you had to take everything that you knew about what you've discovered, what you've uncovered, what you've researched, what is the one piece, the most compelling piece of evidence that you've seen for ancient human origins in, uh, in antiquity? Well, for me, the, the most convincing thing is not any one particular case, but the fact that there are hundreds of these things. Yeah. But uh, among, among the cases that I think are very important, you know, the California gold mine discoveries I think are important because it's clearly documented that these objects existed. Uh, they were investigated by a professional geologist who went out to the sites, examined them, collected the artifacts. Some of the artifacts are still in the collection of the, the Museum of Anthropology at the University of California at Berkeley. I've been there. I've seen them. I've gone to the original sites, some of the old 19th century gold mining tunnels where these objects were originally discovered are still there. And the process of how these discoveries were eliminated from consideration by you know, the scientific community is clearly documented. You can document the process of knowledge filtration but uh, so if I, I had to pick uh, a particular case that I find really convincing, if somebody is, were to look at it very carefully, I would say that one is one of them. But uh, as I said, to me, the main thing is the whole pattern yeah. of discoveries and how they've been ignored, suppressed, or reinterpreted to fit the current theories. But I'm, I'm also going to say one thing here is that is my personal conclusion, my conviction on looking at all of the evidence. And I respect the right of each individual to make up their own mind about these things. Mm -hmm. For example, if somebody listens to me and reads my books and concludes, well, very interesting, but it doesn't convince me. I respect that. I respect that. Uh, but uh, what I really object to is, as I said earlier, when somebody has an idea and they want to force it, compel other people to accept it. So what you're telling us, Michael, is that you're not going to set up a whole bunch of fact-checking websites to go after everybody that contradicts your theory and then work to get them censored off of uh, social media and the whole uh, field of science. <laughs> the no. way they're doing to us. <laughs> no, I, 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 I think each individual has a, a right to make up their own mind. And some people, after considering everything, they do kind of agree 
that, yeah, this is pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, once I was, um, I got a, a letter from a graduate student of archaeology who said, you know, she was doing a, a thesis, a doctoral thesis on human antiquity, and she had come across my book and was surprised, you know, as a graduate student of archaeology that she'd never even heard of hmm. this evidence, even to hear it spoken of negatively, you know. So uh, what, I, what I sometimes tell archaeology students is that they should keep the entire data set that's relevant to their field of study in view. And I tell them, I leave it up to them to divide the data set up to say, well, this seems really solid. This seems not too certain. Let them divide it up, but just keep it all in mind because something that doesn't fit at one particular point in intellectual history may fit in the light of future mm. discoveries. You know, so uh, that's sort of the uh, approach that that I take. Uh, you know, I don't want to be promoting a dogma or saying you have to accept this or else you're going to the nether regions or whatever. It's uh, simply, well, here's some things to think about and draw your own conclusion. Yeah. Um, I, I got one, one question for you, Michael, and this is actually yeah. more recent in discovery. Now, we're seeing that they're utilizing this new technique of elevation uh, matching in the Amazon rainforest to actually find various different lost cities in the Amazon, which is really cool. Um, so they just uncovered one, and they're utilizing this new technique. Um, I, I actually want to go to Mars. Have you seen the doorway on Mars that people are talking about? And what's your thoughts on this doorway, this, this thing that was pictured? And I can bring up a picture if, if you haven't seen it. Yeah, I, I, I have to confess I haven't seen it, but it's one reason why I like coming on shows like this because sometimes I learn things that I don't know already. So this is a, a landscape picture from Mars, okay? Taken uh -huh. from the mass cam on the rover. And if we zoom in, you're going to start seeing this doorway come into vision. And this is yeah. the side of a mountain. Now, they're saying that this is done due to wind erosion. It's just every time I see it, I'm like, what is that? 90, hmm. degree, 90 degrees right there. Yeah. <laughs> you got an archway. <laughs> you got straight line. And they're saying that this is done to, from, uh, from wind erosion. That is pretty interesting. It's the first time I've seen it. You know, it's uh, and what's that little thing on the top? Oh, that's uh, that's just the backdrop of the. Oh, that's my right backdrop. There. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. your backdrop. If that, if that was there, oh my god! No, I know that was there. Be crazy. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a little pyramid on top of yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, you got it looks like polished walls inside. You got a ninety degree angle right there. 
you got this archway that comes down to 90 degrees. We have the arch of the doorway. Now, they're saying it's only three feet tall, but um, our guest last week made a, a good claim. Is if this was 66 million years old, who's to say that this dirt, this ground base right here isn't filled in? Yeah. Yeah. Right? That this isn't just sand that's filling up another three or four feet. But, I mean, we actually went to a different version of this. And you can see a lot of other types of compelling evidence that, um, as for an archaeologist, uh, I, I would be really interested to get your your take on. I think there's one right here. If you look right there in the dirt. That square, square rectangular yeah. area. Yeah. It's like something was dragged through the dirt. Yeah. Obviously, it wasn't that rock. Yeah, there are a lot of interesting things on Mars. As Richard Hoagland, who you mentioned a little earlier, yeah. has pointed out in years well, past. It makes, sense. it makes sense what you're saying, Michael. If we have humanity going back millions of years on this planet and we found these artifacts that, like, think just thinking of pyramids and Kaliza Temple and all these places around the world, um, that... There wouldn't if they're finding these types of anomalous photographs of pyramidal structures on Mars, perfect angles, this type of geometry that's kind of put into it. This is what Hoagland and uh, George Haas and, and Mike Barr and those guys have looked at. Um, it it just to me, we're only going to see little little bits and pieces of this evidence. And that's why I like your answer when you said it's the totality of the evidence that you, when you bring it all together. That changes a lot of things. If you isolate one little thing, you could go, oh, coincidence, maybe, who knows. But if you look at it all together, including the myths and legends and the, this, all these other factors, the consciousness factor, I mean, it really does stand um, to a greater degree, I think, in terms of legitimacy. Yeah, I, I think it is important to look at a, a whole pattern of evidence. I mean... Just concerning back to the archaeological evidence on Earth, if you uh, make a hypothesis that, okay, let's assume that archaeological evidence for extreme human antiquity really is there in the layers of the Earth, then what, what would you expect? You know, if you look at discoveries made by scientists and others, well, you would expect you would find some professional scientists finding this evidence, but because it doesn't fit their theories, they kind of explain it away or put it away or actively suppress it. You would find the maybe there are a few scientists who didn't have any preconceptions and they find it and they consider it to be genuine. And then you would also expect that ordinary people would be finding it and they wouldn't be putting it in a museum or uh, in a scientific publication, but they might put it on a shelf over their, their uh, fireplace and uh, talk about it to a few friends and uh, their reports, they might make it into the local newspaper or so something like that. And that's actually what you see. 
you know, if you look at all the evidence that, you know, that, that pattern does exist. You know, you, you have these scientists from the 19th century and the decades after Darwin, they didn't have any fixed timeline or preconceptions. They were just looking at the evidence and they found evidence for extreme human antiquity. Then when science committed to a fixed idea, they're still encountering this evidence, but they're explaining either discarding it, they're simply ignoring it. You have ordinary people like miners finding uh, human bones or gold chains or coins in coal deposits millions of years old and maybe it gets you find little newspaper reports about it or tabloid uh, tabloid articles or something and then then you know, so you, you see the whole pattern so I, I I think you're you're right you can't just look at one isolated piece you got to consider everything agreed oh absolutely absolutely well Michael, you're always just a wealth of knowledge and it's truly a pleasure to talk to you. Let's stay in touch and, and maybe we can do this again sometime. Please tell people about um, where they can get your books. Uh, if you have any new projects or conferences or uh, books coming up in the future that you want to tell people about. Uh, yeah, if, if people want to get an introduction to my work, they can go to my webpage, mcremo.com, m-c-r-e-m-o.com. And uh, later this month, I'm appearing at a digital conference, a virtual conference. It's called uh, the Indus, Indus Valley Ancient India. Uh, conference. The information about it will be in the schedule link on my webpage. It's also on my Facebook public figure page where I'll be talking about uh, archaeological, anomalous archaeological discoveries in India. So those are some of the places people can look. Uh, my books are available from my website. We have a a special offer that if people get uh, my latest published book, My Science, My Religion, from my website, they will also be offered the chance to, if they want it, to receive a free copy of Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the ancient Indian texts that have inspired my, my work. So those, those are things I'd like to communicate. Awesome. Arjuna. I'm going to buy go. I'm taking you up on that yeah. one, Michael. I, I'd love to have a copy of the book and your new book. It's a, that's amazing. You've got some amazing, uh, excellent books there. People go check it out, look into it. And Michael, I really, really just want to say, I, I love how you brought this forward because it's such a breath of fresh air to have somebody share their life's work and then still say, hey, it's up to you to look at it and decide for yourself. And there's no pressure. We're not forming a cult here. And you can think for yourself. And that that is just something that I love so much. 
and respect about you. And um, you're a real treasure to have and much support and respect here from Mars Chronicles. And we hope that we get to have this conversation with you again in the near future. Well, I thank both of you, David, Josh, good to be with you again. And, and to all the, all the Mars Chronicle people, thanks for giving me your attention for uh, this brief, brief couple of hours. Thanks. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And Josh, thanks to you, man. This was great. And to all of us, well, everybody tuning in, stay tuned. Mars Chronicles, we're just getting warmed up. Episode seven, we've got lots more to go. So stay tuned here and we'll catch everybody again soon. Have a good one, everybody. Take care, guys. Cheers.